You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit lifepointpb.com. <clears throat> and if it's your first time at LifePoint, we're happy too, not just Guest Central. David didn't hear that he said that. All right. Um, if you need Bibles, wave at the ushers, and uh, they'll be happy to pass one to you. Maybe you've forgotten yours in the car or at home. And once you have Bible, turn over, or if you already have yours, turn over to Psalm 33. We're going to talk about a psalm for the nations today, um, our psalm to the nation. I want to just begin by reading it. I'll tell you what we're going to do today, all right, if you stay with me. And I realize that it's been, a, a lot of energy has been expended, um, your mind's a little frazzled, your concentration, your ability to concentrate may be waning a little bit, but stay with me. We're gonna, this morning, we're going to look back for just a short time. <clears throat> I'll give you a little history lesson, but not a long one, okay? Uh, I could. I love history. We could spend all morning, as far as I'm concerned, but your eyes would begin to glass over, and you know, some would begin to go to sleep on me. But we are going to look back for just a minute in order to know how to move forward. It's important. Uh, it's, it's a truth that God lays out for us that we often look back to be able to see how to move forward. And so we're going to spend a few minutes this morning doing that. But I want to start in Psalm 33, and let's read it together. We're going to read the whole psalm. The, as we get into this, we'll probably focus more on the end, but I'm going to read the whole psalm for you. Shout for joy to, in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Yes, it does. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. It's a stringed instrument. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. By the way, can I just stop here? Um, those of you who have ability to write or sing, it's, new songs are an important part of, of worship, personal, corporate, anyway, new songs, things that God's doing, new things he's doing in your life, and putting that into song. Scripture talks about singing a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. We usually skip right over that. We'll play skillfully, we'll sing, but loud shouts we skip over. It's right there with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Yes, it is. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. That's an amazing thought. And if you read a hundred commentators, you'll get a hundred different opinions about what that means. One day I'm going to ask the Lord, what do you mean when you put the deeps in storehouses? Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. This is, yeah, there you go. There's a good shout. This is an absolute truth. No matter what you hear, 
what others may say, he spoke and it came to be. You say, was it, was it a long day? Was it a thousand year day? Is it long view? I mean, is it old earth, new earth? I, you know what? I'm not even going to all that. He spoke and it came to be. That's what it says. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the council of the nations to nothing. They all get together. I don't want to be political on this, but we have a living proof of that right there in New York City. It's called the United Nations. But anyway, he frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. This is why we call this a national psalm. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people, because again, a nation is just people. Just like the church isn't the building, the church is the people. A nation isn't the nation, it's the people. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. There is a specific application here to Israel, obviously. As, as David is writing this, and we know that God has a special, he, that they were chosen people, a special heritage that he's given them. But according to the New Testament, the scripture says we have been grafted in and that we have been chosen as well. So what is written here applies to you and me. We have been chosen as his heritage. Notice what it says as we go on. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. It's important because he's dealing with the heart Never forget this, and we'll talk about this more as we go along this morning, that deeds are simply an outflow of the heart. And we keep trying to change our outward behavior in the deeds of people without realizing that unless God changes the heart, it's a futile effort. It's a futile effort. Because what we do flows out of the heart. It goes on, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. We honor our military. We honor those that we did today. We honor those who serve. And they have finest training. Hopefully, they're provided with the best equipment and all of these things that the world has ever known or ever seen. But our hope is not in the strength of man or in our military technology. It cannot be. And the fact is, history shows us that when we have done that, when we just in our arrogance and our confidence thought we could just win the day with our ingenuity and our might and our strength, we have often not won the day. And so the reality is, and on the other hand, I love Israel. This little bitty speck of land over in the Middle East. When you look at how small Israel really is and the fact that they're all fighting over and, and they're surrounded by just thousands and thousands of miles, square miles of land. But they're all fighting over this little bitty piece. And the, yet the people of that little bitty piece and what God has done and the battles that have been won, the miraculous things that have transpired, this is an amazing thing to me to watch. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. That is a highlight of what we're going to talk about today. The eye of the Lord are on those who fear him. I like, to trans, I like to define fear him as those who take God seriously. Okay? Fear is 
the word has all kinds of connotation and meaning depending on the context. It isn't the idea of I tremble, although there is at times this word used in that context where I literally fear, I'm, I'm trembling in terror. And the reality is when you see things that are mightier than you, that are greater than you, sometimes it can cause that sense of you know, shaking or the butterflies in our stomach or that sense of even fear or dread because it's, it's beyond anything we can even imagine. But that's not the primary context of this. The primary context of this is I take him seriously. One of the best illustrations I know to use this, it use, um, how many of you ever get frustrated when you're driving, especially on the interstate, you're clicking along, and if you happen to be one of the few who's actually driving the speed limit or close to it, and all of a sudden, everybody around you slows down, and then you look and you see a highway patrolman, a police officer, some sort, and everybody slows down, but they don't just slow down to the speed limit, do they? They go slower than the speed limit, and so I go by them all because I'm driving the speed limit, all right? I'm not slowing down. I'm going to keep on going and, um, because I can go that fast. Why do they do that? Because they fear. Now, they're not shaking in their boots afraid of it. They have an understanding that that state trooper, that law enforcement official, can bring punishment, can bring can bring consequences into their life for breaking the law. They take him seriously. That's a perfect illustration of taking someone seriously. Because it's not just I understand something mentally, but I actually change my behavior. I change the way I live, what I'm doing, based on that. When the scripture says, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, those who take him seriously. That he says something, we listen we take it seriously. That when he says something, it actually adjusts the way we think and the way we live. On those who hope in his steadfast love. <laughs> Here's the thing. Even if I take God seriously, I quickly recognize that I cannot change my behavior. Not very much for very long. So what am I left with? I must hope in his steadfast love. Because his love is for me even when my behavior is bad. And so I just keep coming back and saying, Lord, I do take you seriously, but you've got to do a work in me. You've got to do a work in me and through me and for me. That he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. All of these things that he will do for us and the work that he does in us. All right? Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our, God, our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Let your steadfast love, let it be upon us. We've reached a point in a, as a nation that taking God seriously and really our steadfast, our hope and his steadfast love is at a point probably as low as it's ever been in the history of our nation. We really don't take God seriously. I'm talking collectively. I'm not talking about you specifically, but collectively as a nation, we do not. And not just, and this isn't just speaking of those who are not believers. Believers as well. We have, we have moved we 
we have moved steadily, slowly but steadily, in a direction where we really do not take God seriously. I want to share a little history with you, just quickly. And not events, although it's kind of funny. Lori had my kids watch something yesterday, or Friday, I can't remember which day it was. It was one of these man-on-the-street surveys. You know, those are fun. They're fun to watch, especially in this culture where it's, you know, salvation by survey. Um, We, you know, we do everything by survey. So we go on the street and you get somebody asking these questions. So they were asking questions that would pertain to the 4th of July, just man on the street kind of thing. Catching people, most of them were younger. Most of the people they were asking were younger, under, when I say younger, under 50, because I'm under 50, so I consider that young. All right? And so they're going to them. And questions like, what nation broke away from England in the late 1700s to declare their independence? And guy looks at him like, I don't have any clue. <laughs> you happen to be standing in it right now. The United States, we did that. One of my favorites is, um, what nation did we declare independence from? My favorite answer, bar none, the South. All right? <laughs> the South. As a Southerner, I appreciate that. We declared independence from the South. Equally good was California. California. We declared independence from California. God help us. Um, What year did we declare independence? 1964. 1964. Some of you were around to know George Washington. Did you? Some of you, now this is a couple years before my birth, but some of you were around for the Revolutionary War. You could tell us all about it. 1964. Um, it went on and it makes us laugh it would be funny if it weren't so sad um, <clears throat> of course I could ask most anyone that same quiz by the way the person who answered every question correctly was Italian Italian alright <laughs> I, I don't mean a US citizen who's Italian I mean an Italian Italian all right. Um, although that's happening more and more too, because I, unless they've changed it, you still have to take a test to become a citizen here. And so the only people in our country who will know our history will be immigrants who have to take the test. Um, so you listen to that. We and and I went around this room. I'm sure if I would ask some questions, most of you would be able to answer them. We know our dates and our times and different events and things that happened. But I want to talk about history from a different perspective, not just what happened, but why it happened this morning, just for a moment. There is, among, and there was, among the founding fathers, among the, the framers of the Constitution, there was a belief that freedom was, was three parts. Some have called it the golden triangle of freedom. But they believed that freedom, that true freedom, could not be either accomplished or maintained without these three integral collective parts. And that each built upon the other, and they went around in a continuous momentum. And I want to show you some quotes, rather than just tell you what they are, right now, I want to show you some quotes so that you can begin to see them. All right? Would you look at this first? I believe this is John Adams. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. He hits it right there, two of them in that one sentence. 
All right. The, the framers had a great concern, not just to gain independence, but to be able to keep it. Not just to have freedom, but to be able to keep it. That's the reason Benjamin Franklin was asked by a woman as he came out of Independence Hall, and they were after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. She asked Mr. Franklin, what have you done for us? And he said, Madam, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. The reality is the framers had not only the concern of winning it, which we did in the Revolutionary War, they also had to order it. They had to put it in some kind of order, which they did in the Constitution. But then it had to be maintained. It had to be sustained from generation to generation. And that was their great concern, was it continuing and being able to be sustained. The greatest, do you know what the greatest danger to freedom is? Freedom. The greatest danger to freedom is freedom. Because our, our, the founders understood something, that one of the sides of this triangle they called morality or virtue or character. You could call it restraint, self-restraint. They understood that one of the key ingredients to freedom was self-restraint. But the problem is freedom by its very nature often breeds a lack of self-restraint. I'm free to do what I want, so I don't have to be restrained. And so when you look at, at Adams as he writes here, he said that there is no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. These were two sides. They believed that restraint or morals, virtue, was one side of this, and faith, religion, as you'll see it used often. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a well goes through a net. He goes on. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people, for a people with restraint and faith. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. All right? wasn't just Adams. Adams was one of our more conservatives when you write this. You can find the same sort of thing in Jefferson, who would be much more liberal, framer, and founding father. You can find these, these three over and over again. I, I tried to pick out a couple here, though, for you of people maybe you haven't heard. Look at this next one. John Adams, by the way. Everybody knows who John Adams is, right? Second president of the United States. Um, one of, you only have the Adams and the Bushes who've had, are there any other presidents? I think those are the only two that had more than one family member that served as president. And who else? The Roosevelts. And who else? Harrisons. We had more, were they related? See, that's a piece of history I did not know that they were, those Harrisons were related. See, you learn something new every day. All right. Now, religion, this is by Samuel Chase. Samuel Chase was Supreme Court Justice. He was appointed by George Washington. Religion is of general and public concern. It's interesting. And on its support depends in great measure the peace and good order of government, the safety and the happiness of the people. He is basically saying that without faith, this thing that we've set up, this government, this constitution, it will not work. By the way, he was also one of the signers of the Declaration, as well as being a, a Supreme Court justice. Notice this next one. Now, this is also by Samuel Chase. By, by our form of government, the Christian religion is the established religion. And all sects and denominations of Christians are placed upon the same equal footing. Now, in his mind, and if you read through the framers, you're going to find something that when it comes to faith and religion, Christianity was by far the one that they believed was best, although they did not mandate it. 
you were free under the Constitution, even in the minds of the framers, you were free to be an atheist. You had that freedom. You had that right. But they were very skeptical that a nation of, of atheists could survive. As a matter of fact, you'll read in most of them, even those who did not profess to be believers, and many of them did profess to be believers in Jesus Christ, but even among those who did not profess that, such as Franklin and others, they clearly here is saying it was actually established upon that upon that that foundation but all denominations of christians are placed upon the same equal footing and are equally entitled to protection in their religious liberties in other words no one and no government can come in and say you have to operate this way this is laid out for us clearly in the bill of rights the thing that makes the United States very different is not the fact that we have a constitution. Many nations have had a constitution. Not that we fought a war to win liberty. Many nations have done that as well. It's not that we have balance, separation of powers and balance of powers. The Swiss had that hundreds of years before we did. All right. It is not those things that make the United States unique. The thing that makes the United States Constitution unique is the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights makes us unique. And in particular... Amendment 1, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, all of those things, that makes us a very unique, unique place in all of human history. The founders understood this. They set it up that way. And so this protection of religious liberty was built in because here's the thing that the framers, this is what they wanted, it's what they believed. They believed that faith would permeate every part of society and it would allow society, culture, to continue to experience freedom. It was one of those supports, one of those sides of the triangle. As a matter of fact, they believed that freedom required morality, virtue, restraint. And morality, virtue, and restraint required faith of some sort. And faith required freedom and freedom required virtue and morality just keeps going around one connected with each one connected together all bring it together this golden triangle of freedom as they called it and if you read through the writings of the founders they believe this you'll see it in their writings that these things had to happen now what we have today is unsustainable freedom it's unsustainable because we have moved elements that the founders said have to be there. And this was their concern all along, is that at some point, now, and it's moving more rapidly, it has moved slowly, and by the way, this didn't start in the 1960s or even the early 1900s. Really, a lot of this began about 50 years after the signing of the Declaration. All right? It didn't take long for this path that we're on to begin. I want you to see another quote. This one is... Not from one of the founders. This one is from de Tocqueville, Alexei de Tocqueville. He's a Frenchman. He's a French statesman historian. Part of this you've, you may have heard, but the last part of it, I doubt you've read before, maybe if you're a historian, if you really like this kind of stuff. But it clearly illustrates. He caught what the framers were talking about, and you'll see all three of these sides of the triangle in what he wrote. I sought for the key to the greatness and genius of America in her harbors, in her fertile fields and boundless forests, in her rich mines and vast world commerce in her public school system and institutions of learning. I sought for it in the Democratic Congress and in her matchless constitution. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness 
Did I understand the secret of her genius and power? You may have heard that quote before. Later on, in the same section, de Tocqueville wrote Democracy in America. It's actually a two-volume work, one of the greatest just examinations of, of democracy in this country. Notice what he said. America is great because America is good, and if America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. You've also heard that. Look at the next one with me. The safeguard of morality, there's one side, virtue, morality, is religion, faith, there's the other. And morality is the best security of law as well as the purest pledge of freedom. Freedom, virtue, faith. They go together. Okay? Are you still with me? Have you checked out? All right? I'm done with the history lesson. Almost. Almost. Okay? Quickly, I'm going to run you through 250 years of history here real quick. I'm going to walk with you. All right? Real quick. The founders, we established what they believed, this golden rule, this, this golden triangle of freedom. That's what they believed. Freedom could not be maintained without it. You need to understand this. You need to understand what you're facing because I'm going to take you to where we are today. I've been asked repeatedly in the last week and a half, what do I think about the Supreme Court's decision last Friday? And I've tried to hesitate in answering that because I wanted to have time to, to develop it more. That's what I'm doing right here. The founders, the signers, had this triangle of freedom. And for about 50 or 60 years, virtue, faith, freedom, working in society, in culture, in every aspect of our society, moving about in the marketplace, moving about not just in church, in the marketplace, in schools, in education, in, in businesses, permeating our culture, creating this balance. About the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, there in the early 1800s, Something began which was called the privatization of religion. The privatization of religion was a thought began really about the beginning of the Industrial Revolution that religion was important, but it was private. It was a private matter. It was between you and your God. It wasn't necessarily a public matter. It was a private matter. So go do whatever you had to do, but don't, don't talk about it too much. Don't, you emphasize it in your own personal way. All right? That thought was not original with the founders. That thought came along 50 or 60 years later. Well, it's probably been around for a long time, but it began to take root 50 or 60 years later. And over the next 100 years, it really grew. That religion is private. That faith is it's a private matter. Now, see, we hear that and you think, oh, yeah. You know why? Because it has been instilled generation after generation. The founders did not believe that. They didn't. That's the reason when you go and you look at all these buildings in Washington, D.C., they've got all these scripture quotes on them. They've got all these things. Why? They did not believe that faith was a private matter. That continued for about 100 years or so, developed. And then we moved into another stage, which happened more toward the beginning of of the 20th century. And it moved from faith just being a private matter to being a complete separation. In other words, faith had no, not only was it a private matter, it had no place in the market or in schools or in government or anywhere else. It was completely separate. There there was everything else in life, but faith did not have anything to offer to these other things. It stood on its own, all right? Completely separate. And by the way, Again, that didn't just happen in the last 20 or 30 years. That began in the late 1800s, early 1900s. 
One of our presidents, Woodrow Wilson, is a great illustration of this, okay? And he was president during the First World War. So we've got this move, this, and it moves slowly at first. It, it would take decades, decades, 50 years, 100 years. Things move slowly. It picks up speed as it goes along. And then in the late 70s, this not new because it was in the garden, but this thought from the garden that hadn't really been part of American life took root here. We call it postmodernism. How many of you know, if I were to ask you to stand up right now and define postmodernism, how many could do that for me? There's a few of you. I, th- I figured that. I probably couldn't have either. Because we throw these terms around. What are they, postmodern? I thought we were more modern. What do we mean postmodern? We're more modern than they used to be. What is postmodern? Postmodern is a, a system of thought. In its simplest terms, it means there are no absolutes. That's postmodern thinking. In its simplest term, it's much more complicated than that, but in its simplest term, and I'm a simple sort of guy, all right? In its simplest terms, there are no absolutes. The only absolute is that man defines his own truth. That's the only absolute. Man defines his own truth. So my truth is truth for me, but it doesn't have to be truth for Chuck. Chuck's truth is truth for Chuck, but it's not truth for me. Every man defines his own truth. Now, can you look at our culture and see how that's playing out? By the way, it has affected even the Christian church, not just society as a whole. I'm telling you, if you'll take an honest look and let the Holy Spirit lead you, you many of us parent in postmodern thought because there is no absolute truth. So what makes you happy? What, cause, what you enjoy? What you think will be fun? Lord, and I have really purpose to try to work not to ask our children, did you have fun? Yes, we want them to have fun. I'm not, well, sometimes I am a tyrant, but their mother wants them to have fun, all right? But what I've done is I've bought into this postmodern thought that there, isn't, there are no absolutes, there, are, there is no higher purpose, no higher authority, it's just whatever I believe to be truth, whatever makes me feel good right now, that is truth. Everybody gets to write their own truth. And what I believe to be truth and what you believe to be truth it doesn't really matter. Eat what, my truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth. Of course, the problem with that, my kids listen to a song, a rapper, Christian rapper, um, and he talks about this in one of his songs, and yes, I listen because I have to know what they're doing, all right? Um, it is, it's a, it's, I need grace from God to be able to do so, but I, I, I listen, and he, and he hits it right on the head. Matter of fact, I didn't, maybe kids go back, listen to what he's saying. Because he's talking in this song and he's saying, what if my truth says your truth is a lie? Then whose truth is truth? He's coming right at postmodernism. That is what we're facing. For the last 40 years, it has taken root here. And it affects every part of our culture. So what happened on Friday is not a surprise. Because every man determines his own truth. There are no absolutes. Now, here's the challenge that we have, because as the church, through the years, we've tried to hold on to say, yes, there is absolute truth, and God is absolute. Jesus is truth, and that's absolute. At the same time, we've often had very hard hearts and very bad attitudes while we've done it. So we've stood on the truth and looked nothing like Jesus as we did it. And now we find ourselves here in 2015. 
someone asked me, Pastor, what does this mean for you about gay marriage? I said, it doesn't mean anything for me, really, in the sense that under our government and what our government, the, under the autonomy that our government gives, everybody has the right. If you take God away from this issue, then yes, everyone has the right to marry whomever they choose. If you take God, now please don't take what I just said out of context. If you remove God from the equation, you do not have an argument. You do not. Because it's a civil rights issue. It's an issue of autonomy. And under our government, under our system of government, everybody has the right to marry whomever they please. As long as they're not harming somebody else. If you remove God. Which we have. I watch people, secular people, try to make this argument without God. It's hilarious. We are hypocritical. If you remove God, you don't have an argument. Everybody determines their own truth. This is postmodernism. For me, I believe that there is absolute truth. That God is absolute truth. And his truth isn't just, it isn't just pointed at one group of people or one individual or one class. You know why we pick on homosexuals? Because for many of us, that's not our sin. So I can feel self-righteous because that's not my sin, but I won't allow the absolute truth of God to deal with my own sin. Let him deal with somebody else's. I'll stand on that. So we have said, yes, there are absolutes, but we haven't looked like Jesus in doing it. Someone said, can you do that? Can you, will you be forced to? I don't know what will happen legally as we move forward. Right now, the, the First Amendment protects religion. Even, Chief, or even um, Justice Kennedy said this in his majority opinion, that this would not affect churches Religious organizations and their beliefs, they can still do what they believe. That's today. That probably will change. But for me, there is an absolute truth, whatever that cost, whatever it means. But it's not just in this one area. If you came to me as a heterosexual couple and said, we want to marry each other, but we don't really want to be faithful, we're going to still kind of live as though we're single. It's like, I'm not going to marry you. Or you can't do with any other list of things that God says, this isn't my design for you. This isn't what's best for you. It's not that I'm trying to limit your freedom. It's because I love you and I created you and I know how I made you. Now with all of this that's going on, what do we do as believers? Let me show you real quickly. I want to show you some scripture. I think applies directly to our day. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. We read this a moment ago. And on those who hope in His steadfast love that He may deliver their souls from death and keep them alive from famine. Those who take God seriously. Here's the first thing as believers. I am going to submit to God as absolute truth even when it messes up my own life. I'm going to quit worrying about somebody else's life to start with. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to let God deal with my own my own sin, my own rebellion, my own lack of submission. 
God, I will submit to you and what you say is true. You know, the problem that we have is that we love the Bible until I read something in it that I don't like, that doesn't agree with me or doesn't agree with my lifestyle. And then I look for somebody out on the internet who agrees with me, all right, who can interpret it some other way. There are often things in God's Word that aren't that complicated. They're just complicated because I don't want to do them. I don't want to live by them. I don't want to submit to them. Let God deal with us first. All of us. Every one of us. Lord, I submit to you. Daily, I get up before you. And I'm going to need his steadfast love to do this because I can't do it on my own. My, my flesh wants to do my own thing. And we feel good because I don't do this thing. So I, I create a little camp over here of things I don't do. And I can be self-righteous now because God says don't do those and I don't do them. And all of this other that's going on within my heart, I never allow him to have access to. He never has sovereignty over. He never has lordship over those things. I justify them. Or I just don't face them at all. Lord, I submit to you in everything. He goes on, look at the scripture here. Acts 4. This is really important in dealing with those, because we are now, because we're in a postmodern culture, if you submit to God as an absolute authority, you are going to be in the minority. Okay, please don't be surprised by that. You are going to be the minority. I would say, in my own opinion, there's no scientific research for this, in my own opinion, that will make you 10 to 20% of the population. Maybe. Maybe. If you submit to his authority in all matters. What do you do? You submit to his authority, but you allow the love of God to do something with your heart so you're not so nasty and mean when you do it. Okay? Are you with me? Repeat that, okay. Um, we're going to submit to his authority, but we're going to let the love of God work in our hearts so we're not so nasty and mean as we do it. Because we're really not submitting to him if what it produces in me is a nasty meanness. Let me show you in Scripture what I'm talking about. Acts 4, 19. But Peter and John answered them. They were called before the Sanhedrin, before this governing body, religious, and they also had political authority and religious authority. And they were called before them, and they were commanded not to preach anymore in Jesus' name. You are creating a mess. You're stirring up a ruckus. You're saying things that make us uncomfortable. Don't do it anymore. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. They're not being disrespectful. They're not being arrogant or prideful. Whether we should listen to you or God, you're going to have to judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You judge whether it's right or wrong. You do what you must do. But for us, we have to submit to God. We have to obey Him. There is not a, an attitude here. There isn't a, you know, you go jump in a lake, I can do what I want. There isn't this harshness, meanness, arrogance that's, that's, that's flowing out of this. It is, we must obey God. I realize you have a job to do. There are things that, the day may come where we have to suffer where we may be imprisoned, where we may have loss because we have to obey God. Matter of fact, I don't think it's if, I think it's when. 
But when I do it, I want to look like Jesus when I walk through it. Daniel ended up in the lion's den, but I don't see him rushing there. You know? And even as he went, there was such an attitude about him that the work of the power of God in saving Daniel and the power of God at work through Daniel changed the heart of the king. Look at this next verse with me. Demonstrate respect to everyone, especially those who have been put in positions of authority, even when you disagree with them. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. He didn't say if, and, or but. Now, we're going to submit to God, and what he says, this is what he says. All authority comes from me. There is no authority unless I, this whole structure of authority comes from me. And notice what he says, and those that exist have been instituted by God. He says they're there, matter of fact, the King James says they are ministers of God for my good. You say, but Troy, they don't do good. I understand that. But somehow or another, God still is able to work through those who don't do good to minister good to us. Sometimes people come to me and they will say, they will be addressing or talking about our president and they will say, Obama. Can I encourage you not to do that? He is President Obama. He is Mr. Obama. He's not Obama or some other term of derision. You say, do you agree with him? No, I disagree with almost everything he does. But he is my president. He has a position of authority given by God. You say, no, the people voted. Uneducated voters put him in. No, according to Romans, God did. You say, I don't understand. Neither do I. You can take it up with God when you see him. I don't understand a lot of things. But I submit to what he says. And I pray for my president. And I pray for my Supreme Court justices. And I pray for the ones in low. I was at, a, I was at a, um, a dinner here recently, and I was sitting next to Mayor Capote from Palm Bay. I pray for him. I got to know him a little bit better. I pray for him. What he has to do. Look at this next verse. Therefore, who resist, therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. You see, this submitting to God's a whole lot wider than just one issue, isn't it? It's a whole lot bigger. Yeah, we want people to change their behavior over here, but I don't want to change mine. I have the right to say what I want. Governmentally speaking, I suppose you do, but as a believer, you're under a higher authority. Look at the next verse, 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings. We don't have a king, but we do have a president. We have a system of government. And all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. 
I know it's quiet in here because I'm in, I'm, I'm stepping on toe territory. I know. Because this gets political. This gets personal. This gets, I mean, we all have differing views on all kinds of things. And I'm telling you, regardless of the nation that you live in, are your political views that as a believer we are called to a higher standard. Well, other people don't do that. I know. And then that makes me angry and it makes you angry and then we respond in a way that the Lord says, I don't want you to respond that way. I don't want you to live that way. I want, and by God's grace, I will stand and submit myself to His absolute truth. But as I do so, the work of His Spirit in me causes an attractiveness, a graciousness, a love that can be demonstrated. There are people at least my, my, my prayer and my belief is that they, there are people that I know that I have conversations with and have had that know that even though I disagree with them, I love them. I can't stand with you on this particular thing, but I care about you. And I don't want to stand in opposition in an arrogant, prideful way. Because quite honestly... I don't determine what to submit to and what not to submit to. God does. But there is absolute truth. And you're going to constantly come up against it in this culture. You just start looking around today, just today with your eyes open, and you will see postmodernism everywhere. That there are no absolutes, and what used to be true isn't true anymore because every man does what's right in his own eyes. And he's free to do so because it's America. Well, under our system of government, maybe so. But whose are we? To whom do we belong? I am an American citizen second. I am a believer in Jesus Christ, his follower first. But that doesn't make me walk around prideful or arrogant or just, as a friend of mine used to say, mean as a one-eyed water moccasin. All right? You say, what is that? A one-eyed watermelon. I don't know why he's mean, but he's just mean, all right? Been a lot of fights, I guess, and lost an eye. Haven't you seen that, though, before? Believers who are just mean. Haven't you seen that? Now, I'm not going to make you answer this out loud, but just in, internally, have you ever been a believer who's just mean? Just mean. It's arrogant. Maybe we thought we were doing it for the right reasons. I want you to bow your heads with me. I told you we were going to pray some more together, and that's what we're going to do right here. Would you ask the Lord just to show you Number one, are you submitted to him? Is there anything that God has revealed? Anything that he has revealed in his word, anything that he has spoken to you by his word, and you've simply said, I can't do that, I won't do that, I'm unable to do that, it's not right that I have to do that. 
whatever response it might be. The place that you and I must start is, will I submit there? And you may be thinking, Troy, I'm not sure I can. Can I separate out two things for you? The ability to submit is given to you by His grace in the moment. The power to live that out is given to you as you live it out. But they're two separate things. And many of us stop at the point of surrender because we're not sure we can live it out. Don't worry about living it out. He will give you grace in the moment, day by day, as you open up, as you receive it. But what he's giving you grace for right now is simply to come and say, I submit. It's much like becoming a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, being saved. You were given grace in the moment to do so. And you responded to that. And then he daily gives you grace to walk it out. So just submit by his grace. Say, Lord, I submit. And I'm trusting you for the power at work in me and through me to live it day by day. submitting would you ask the Lord to do that last verse we looked at that on a daily basis Lord would you prompt me and empower me to pray for those in authority over me on a daily basis just prompt me and empower me that instead of complaining about my leaders I'm going to pray for them any other in American history. And as difficult as it may be, and as discouraging as at times it can be when we look around, there is a part of postmodernism that is a great opportunity for all of us. Because along with everything else, what this postmodern philosophy has brought is a desire for community. And Lord, you have given the church the opportunity, the place, the ability by your grace to demonstrate community that isn't of this earth. It is supernatural. It is supernatural. But Lord, it has to look like you, not like us. It has to look like you. And so Lord, help us. Help us in all of this. 
Help us, Lord, as we stand and we submit, really. We don't stand, we submit to you as absolute truth and what you say. But oh, for your love to flow in and through us. And Lord, I can't do that. I don't think anybody in this room can do that on their own. We are trusting you to do this in us. So help us, Lord. Help us. Thank you for the place that we are. That you have chosen our time in history and the nation in which we live. There's a reason that we are here for such a time as this. And so we thank you for that. Because again, we submit to you, to your plan. Help us, Lord, to go out and live this way in everything. We're going to dismiss in just a moment. When we do, we always have prayer partners here. And if there's a need in your life, any kind, anything we can pray with you about, we'd love to be able to do that. Lord, we pray your favor, your blessing on the rest of this weekend and all the things that we do and where we go. But Lord, in all of this, would you do a work that we would submit to you and that we would love one another. And Lord, it is a work that you do. So we're asking you to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. I know today, this is a tough sort of message today, but thank you for your attention. Thank you for being here. God bless you. You're dismissed.